Every person in this world has foundations and crowns and teachers. Foundations are the things or people we stand on, we rely on. They might be unseen things in our lives that we say, I, I, I rely on that, I stand on that. That enables me to live the life that I live. That is what I'm built upon. That's a foundation in my life. Crowns are the things we consider to be the pinnacle of beauty and honour in our lives. We stand on foundations. We show off our crowns. What are the things you show off about? These are the things I want people to see. You know, to give you a family example, if you've got good parents growing up, your parents were foundations. You didn't show off about your parents, but you, you know, they enabled you to live your life and go about life the way you wanted to. Maybe children are more like crowns and we love to show off about our children and show them off and say how wonderful they are. What are your foundations? What are your crowns? And what are your teachers? People, books, or the internet that stand alongside you in life and teach you and advise you and help you understand the world and life you're going through. So have a think, have a think just for a moment. I won't give you too long, but just have a think. What are the foundations in my life? What are the crowns in my life? And who, are what, who or what are my teachers? Well, let us read together from Isaiah chapter 28, which will touch on all three of these things. Great. Isaiah 28. Are the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine? Behold, the Lord has one who is strong and mighty, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He cast down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like the first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back and battle at the gate. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment for all the tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those who are taken from the breast. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by a people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, this is rest. Give rest to the weary and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, here, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backwards and be broken and snared and taken. 
Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass through, by day and by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. And the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perazim, as in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused, to do his deed. Strange is his deed, and to work his work alien is his work. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord of hosts against the whole land. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plough, does he who ploughs for sowing plough continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has levelled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin and put in wheat in rows? And barley in its proper place and emna as the border? For he is rightly instructed, for his God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Now, as we've seen time and time again in this Isaiah series, this is a prophetic poem covering lots and lots of different themes and speaking into lots of different areas of life. But I want to ask you three questions this morning from that passage. And the first question is this. Are you wearing a fading crown of pride or is God himself your diadem of beauty? Verses one to eight is about what crown are you wearing? Ephraim was the leading tribe of the northern kingdom of Israel. So if you know your Israelite history, you'll know that the kingdom was split in two and there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was called Israel and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And Ephraim was the leading tribe in the northern kingdom and the capital of Ephraim and therefore the capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. And Samaria was a rich, fertile beautiful valley with wonderful vineyards. This is all part of God's gift to the nation of Israel. When, they, when the people of God entered into the promised land, God says this is a land flowing with milk and honey. And Samaria was part of that glorious land that God gave to the nation of Israel. And they grew wonderful vines in this beautiful valley. Like wearing a crown, you can imagine the people of Ephraim saying, look at what God has given. 
It's beautiful, it's glorious, it's stupendous. Like we want to show off at this amazing land that God has given to us. And expressed in that way, the crown would have been a crown of thankfulness and glory to God. I wonder if that's the way you express yourselves when you have good gifts in life. Is that how you express? Look at what God has done in my life. Look at this family that he's given to me. Look at this church that God has brought together and done amazing things. Look at this job that he has provided. Are you one who says, God is so what he has he's brought such beauty and glory into my life. I want, I want to show off about what God has done, the great things that he has done in my life. But that's not how Ephraim are expressing themselves. That's not how Ephraim are showing off. Instead, this crown is made of pride. The phrase in the ESV which says proud crown makes it sound like the crown itself is proud, but that's not what the Hebrew is crown of pride. This is a crown that Ephraim are wearing and it's constructed not from gold or silver, it's made of pride. Over generations and generations, this tribe of Israel have turned away from God and said, look at this amazing land. Look at the amazing wine that we are making. Aren't we fantastic? Aren't we brilliant? Maybe we're the greatest tribe in all of Israel because look at our valleys and our vineyards. And do you see they're puffing themselves up with pride rather than being thankful to God. Pride can be measured by how thankful to God we are. If you turn praise and encouragement and good gifts back to God in thankfulness, then that's a sign of humility. But when you fail to thank God, that's pride. You're failing to acknowledge God's generosity in everything good that you have. And the implication when you aren't thankful to God is, I earned this. I did this. I, I deserve the praise and adoration. It comes to me. So I want to encourage you that when someone encourages you, go back to God and say, thank you, Lord. You used me in that situation or I was able to do something good because of the gifts you've given to me. And when you look at your life and say, I've got good gifts, go back to God in thankfulness and say, God, I have done nothing to earn this. This is not what I have earned with my deeds, but you, God, have been generous to me. And you might say, well, I've worked really hard for this. Well, yes, you have, but who gave you the ability and the skills and the time to work really hard? It was God himself. So everything you have that is good has come from God. Be humble and thankful to him. How thankful you are to God is inversely proportional to how proud you are. Well, this crown of the Ephraimites is not just made of pride, it's also associated with drunkenness. Ah, oh, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. In Ephesians 5 verse 18, it says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled by the Spirit, We're filled with the Spirit. So to get drunk is a sin, it's commanded against in the Bible. But also the drunkenness of the Ephraimites is really a symbol of luxurious, luxurious self-indulgence. They've taken the good gift that God has given to them. The vineyards were a good gift from God, but they've taken that good gift and they've ignored God and they've luxuriously self-indulged to the point of being drunk. They've taken the good gifts of God and abused that gift 
in order to fulfill themselves and again to puff themselves up so you see they're full of pride we're fantastic we're amazing and they're full of self-indulgence we're just going to pump ourselves full of this wine that we're creating and they get drunk as Ephraim gets drunk the beauty fades this is a really important question that you need to ask yourself the crown that you thought of earlier, the thing that you said, this is the pinnacle of glory and beauty in my life, this is the thing I want to show off to everybody, does that crown have lasting beauty and glory or is it got fading beauty and glory? So you see, if you, as you in, indulge in, in wine and get drunk, and you, you, you can see this on, on nights out, people get all doled up and dressed up, don't they? And then they drink and they drink and they drink and by the end of the night, horrendous, they look awful, the beauty fades. Well, that's what's going on in Ephraim, and that's sometimes what happens in our lives. When we say, this is the most glorious and beautiful thing in my life, this is my crown that I want to show off to the world, if we've chosen badly, then the beauty fades, disappears and goes. Are these things I show off about today, but tomorrow its glory will have faded? In which case, that's not a very good crown. That's not a very valuable crown. It's like a Christmas cracker party hat crown rather than a royal crown made of gold. In verse 2, because of the pride and drunkenness of Ephraim, the Lord, strong and mighty one, will cast down to the ground like hail and he'll stamp on that crown. It will be crushed. It will be crushed in verses 2 and 3. In verse 4, Ephraim itself will be like a fig, which is picked and eaten. There will be no glory or beauty left. And this judgment will be so severe, it's compared to the staggering and vomiting of a drunk person in verses 7 and 8. Aren't those verses in 7 and 8 pretty, whoa, like vomit everywhere. This is no longer beauty, this is horrendous. But a different crown is mentioned in verse 5. The Lord of hosts himself will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. The Lord of hosts is a name of God that reveals his awesome power. The word host can refer to three different things. The word host can be, refer to earthly armies. If I said there's a great host before me, I might be saying there's a great massive army before me. So host can refer to earthly armies. It can also refer to angelic armies, a great angelic host, an army of angels before me. And the word host can also refer to the sun, moon, stars and planets in all the universe. So when God is described as the Lord of hosts, we're saying he's the Lord of earthly armies. He's the Lord of heavenly armies and he's the Lord of the, the heavenly hosts in the stars and the planets. All of them surrender to his will because he is Lord. And so we're saying that he is Lord of all things. And so some of your Bible translations will say Lord Almighty. There's nothing he cannot do. If he controls earthly armies, angelic armies and the host of the universe, then all things surrender to God's power. Because the Lord of hosts declares that God is the master of all things. He has supreme power. And it is the Lord of hosts who is a crown for the remnant of God's people. Most people say, hey, look at my new car, 
look at my nice wine, look at my amazing house, look at all the awesome things I've done, all the amazing places I've travelled to. These are my crowns, these are the things I want to show off about. But as Christians, we say, my God is the Lord of hosts. That's my crown. That's the thing I want to boast about. I want to boast in who God is. He is the Lord of all things. I asked you at the beginning, what is your crown? What is your greatest beauty in life? What is your greatest glory? What is the thing to show off about? And the answer that we, I want us all to give is, is God himself. I love to show off about God himself because he is magnificent. He is powerful and glorious. Every other crown will fade, but God will eternally shine with such beauty and glory that you yourself have not yet truly perceived just how glorious and beautiful God is. Do you know that? There's so much more for you to discover about how awesome God is. So you're in, a, in one sense, God himself is not shining more brightly, but you will come to see how much more beautiful the crown of God is. It becomes more beautiful as we go through life and then into eternity it will shine brighter and brighter and more and more glorious because there's always new things to discover about how wonderful God is. Is God himself your greatest pride? In fact, no, let me rephrase that. Is God himself your only pride? Paul says this, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing Paul will ever boast about, he says, is Jesus and the fact that he was crucified for me. That's part of God's glory, isn't it? That Jesus loved us so much, he died on the cross for us. That was, in, in a sense, the pinnacle of this revelation of the glory of God. He loves us. He's the Lord of hosts. All th- he, he controls all things. And yet Jesus, God the Son, hung on the tree, hung on the cross for us in order that we might be forgiven. And Paul says, that's what I'm going to boast about. Jesus is my boast, that he was crucified. That's the only thing I will boast about. I do not want to boast about anything else except that. And so the question to ask yourself is, do I boast in Jesus? How do I do that? How can I boast in Jesus Christ? How can I wear this diadem of beauty, which is the Lord himself? If you're visiting this morning or you're looking into church, maybe you're watching this online, there's nothing special, beautiful or glorious about this church, this group of people, except God himself and what he has done and what he is doing and the fact that he himself is in our midst. That's what is glorious about church is that God is with us And he does awesome things in our lives. And when I look at this amazing group of people, and you are amazing, but it's God at work in you that which is the most special, glorious thing, the crown that you all ought to wear in your lives. So in Isaiah 28 verse 5, God is the crown of Christians. He is our glory. He is our beauty. He is the thing we show off about. But listen to this. Isaiah 62 verse 3 In that verse, God says to his people, to us, you shall be 
a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. So we, we are crowned with God himself. He is our coronation and our glory and our beauty and our pride. He is our crown. But then God switches it round and says to his people, you are my crown. Church, my delight is in you. You shine forth my beauty and my glory in the world. You shine with glory unfading for the Holy Spirit is within you and God's love is pouring out from you and you will shine brighter and brighter and brighter throughout the history of your lives and people will look in and say, I want some of that glory and that beauty. Where are you getting that from? And we'll say, it's not us, it's God. It's God's beauty shining through us. And so God is our crown and we show off about him and then God The Lord of hosts says, you are my crown. Go and shine forth the glory and the beauty of God with which he has crowned you in order that others might see just how glorious and beautiful he is. So if you're looking in, boy, is this church special. This is the crown of God gathering together. Not because of how wonderful you are but because God is wonderful and has made you shine with beauty and glory. We're the beauty, we're the glory, we're the crown, we're the diadem of God. So Christians boast only in God as you wear him as a crown and shine forth with his beauty in Christ, living as God calls us to live. What crown are you wearing? A crown of fading pride or God himself? My second question I would like to ask you this morning is, who is your teacher? Who is your teacher? Verse 9 asks this really important question. Whom will God teach? Who is God going to teach? And verse 10 exemplifies how Ephraim and Israel want to respond to this question. They want to say, oh, it's precept upon precept. It's precept upon precept. It's line upon line. It's line upon line. Here a little and there a little. Now, forgive my pronunciation here, but I'm going to read that to you in Hebrew. Sav la sav, sav la sav, kav la kav, kav la kav, za'er sham, za'er sham. That is the Hebrew equivalent of blah, blah, blah. That's what's going on. God is teaching and the Ephraims are going, oh, kav la kav, kav la kav, blah, 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 God. That's how they're treating God's word. And many people in this world react precisely the same way to the teaching of God, don't they? God's teaching in the Bible, blah, blah, blah. Some people in here, God's word, blah, blah, blah. Precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little, I don't care. Of course, that's not the attitude that we ought to have. This book is God speaking. God teaching. This is not blah, blah, blah. This is the source of truth and life. This is an, when we read this, it's an encounter with God for he speaks and we listen and we respond. I want to encourage you to incline your ear to submit to God's word as often and as much as you can. I love the prophetic. I love it when we have people come up the front and say, God's spoken to me, and they bring a word and you say, yes, God is speaking. That's God's word applied to us in this moment. God has spoken to us. That's a glorious moment. The prophetic is amazing. 
But I love opening up this book and knowing that God is speaking to me every time I read it. And I ought to read it like that because God is my teacher and this is the primary tool he will use to teach and to guide you. The prophetic is amazing, but you're not going to get the prophetic every day. This you can have every day. Maybe you will have the prophetic every day, but this you can have whenever you want to hear God's voice. Verse 12 contains the teaching that God has tried to give to the Israelites. This is rest, God says. Give rest to the weary. It's not precept upon precept and line upon line. It's come and have rest. I love that Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, takes up this very same teaching. He says, come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to Christ by faith in him, believe in Jesus, and he will give you real, real rest in your souls, in your hearts. I tell you the truth, people who say, oh, the word of God, blah, 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 do not know what real rest is. And I, if I were to venture a guess about your life, I would say you're restless and tired and you're wonder, wondering if there really is rest and contentment anywhere in this world. I speak to lots of people like that. Well, Jesus says, come to him and he will give you rest. But let me, let me read to you the, the next bit. Come to me, says Christ, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Where is rest? It's in learning from Jesus, the great teacher. Learn from Jesus, and you will experience this rest in your souls. I really, really believe this. We would be better rested Christians, better rested people, if we give time and energy to learning from Jesus in the word of God. In Matthew 11, Jesus has used a farming metaphor, be yoked to me, two, two oxes yoked together to pull a plough. And, and Jesus says, come be yoked to me, come learn from me. In Isaiah 28, God uses a, a farming analogy as well in verses 23 to 29. He says, give ear and hear my voice in verse 23. And then he talks about ploughing in verse 24. And then scattering seed in verse 25. He talks about right instruction in verse 26. In verse 27 he says use the right tools for the right plants. And in verse 28 he says don't fresh forever, don't crush grain, because God is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Some of you need a fresh reminder of that this morning. God is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. You've been doing life your own way. You've been neglecting the Bible. You've been deciding things for yourself. God is the one who's excellent in counsel. Go to him, run to him, pray, bring your situation to him, open up the word of God and seek his wisdom and his counsel in your life. But the, the effect, the teaching of verses 23 to 29 is this. Just as a farmer does the right thing in the right season and he doesn't do the same thing all year, 
So God works in all things in different seasons and in different ways in order for us to learn. And so think about the season of life you're in now. God is acting as a farmer and using that season to teach you. And, you, and in Isaiah, there's all these different seasons. There's a season now where they're hearing God's word, hearing God's warning. And then there'll be a season of exile where they'll be invaded and taken into foreign lands. And then there'll be a season of return from exile and they'll come back to the promised land. And then there'll be a gap and then there'll be a season where Christ comes in glory. There's different seasons and God teaches the Israelites through all the different seasons. He does the same in your life. And so the things that you are going through right now are seasons that God is bringing you through in order to teach you things. We spoke about this last week. God sometimes disciplines his children. He doesn't pour out wrath and anger and judgment upon his children, but he sometimes disciplines his children in order to teach you things. And so you go through challenges and God's teaching you or you go through blessings and God is teaching you. So what season are you in right now and what is God teaching you through that season? And the best way to, to, to work that out is to go to the word and read the word in the midst of the season and learn from God, the great farmer. Verse 22 says, do not scoff, for I have heard a decree of destruction against the land. So right now, when Isaiah writes this, it's a time of heeding the warning. That's the season they're in. You've got to heed the warning, but you're not going to keep hearing the warning forever. Maybe the warning is the plough is coming. You know, that's the warning. Heed the warning. That's the season. A new season is coming and that's when the plough will actually come and do the ploughing. So you need to be ready. You need to heed the warning. Maybe we're in a season now where we need to heed the warning. We need to make God your, our teacher. So what is your crown? What are you showing off about? Is it God? And who is your teacher? And I cannot stress this enough. To be a disciple means to learn from whoever you're a disciple of. And so to be a Christian disciple is to be a learner from Jesus. That's what you're invited to. So keep pushing into learning through the word, through different seasons, through living out the instructions. Finally, my third and final question this morning. What is your foundation? What is your foundation? Have a look at verses 14 to 18. The rulers in Jerusalem, so we're in a different part of Israel now. So we were in the tribe of Ephraim in Samaria. Now we're in Jerusalem in verses 14 to 18. The rulers in Jerusalem have made their own safety net. In verse 15, they say, we've got our own covenant with Sheol. Sheol is the word for grave. We've got our own covenant with death. And uh, in light of the coming invasion that, might, that they may or may not have known about, some people think that this verse is about their agreement with Egypt for protection. So what did, what did Israel do? Knowing that invasion was coming, instead of praying to God and asking for protection, what Israel actually did is said, let's go and get Egypt and Pharaoh to protect us. And we'll run there for protection. That's coming up in later chapters. So maybe that's what's being spoken about here. We've got our own covenant with Sheol. The Assyrians aren't going to destroy us. Instead, we're going to seek the protection of Pharaoh and Egypt and we'll be okay there. Now, if you know anything about the story of Exodus and the way Pharaoh treated the Israelites in the book of Exodus and the way God brought them out of slavery in Egypt, you will know that this is an extremely foolish and stupid thing for the Israelites to do. They're going back where God has taken them out from. So they're going back to the wrong, wrong place. Anyway, that's a sermon for later on in the Isaiah series. They've done a stupid thing. But maybe that's the covenant of death that they're talking about. 
whatever they're saying, whatever the covenant is, they're basically saying, we've got an agreement with death and we're going to be okay. I think our culture has its own covenant with death. This is the covenant I think that our culture has with death. We ignore it and we fill our lives with various trifling entertainments until we amuse ourselves to death. That's what I think our covenant with death is. We, ignore, we don't think about it. We like, we like to ignore it as much as possible. We run away from it. So, so when COVID hits, preserving life and, and not dying is the very most important thing. So we must go into lockdown. We I'm not criticizing necessarily those things. I'm just saying that that is a motivation of saying we, we're fleeing death. We must kind of ignore death and do everything we can not to handle death. End of verse 15 talks about the Israelites and says, in falsehood, we have taken shelter. And I think our culture has taken shelter in falsehood. We won't die. We won't die. That's the lie that gives me comfort. Not yet, anyway. I've got ages. Don't need to worry about death. Don't need to think about death. Here's my hypothesis. When I asked you what is your foundation, unless you gave the good, nice Christian answer, when I asked you what is your foundation, you may have thought about a person, a spouse, a parent, or a friend who you just completely rely upon. And the truth is, as good as that person might be, that's not a sure foundation. They're a sinful human being, they will mess up at times, and one day that person will die. If you didn't think about a person when I asked that question, what you may have thought is, I don't have or I don't need a foundation. I'm my own captain. I can be my own strength. I can well up strength inside myself. I rely upon myself and myself alone. If you're in that second category, you've lulled yourself into a false sense of security by ignoring reality. And you will do the very best for the rest of your life not to think about death and your own weaknesses. And in order to avoid thinking about that, you will fill your lives with pointless, meaningless amusement until you do in fact die and you realise that you really did need a sure foundation on which to stand. And if that's you, can I tell you that there is a better life for you? There is something better than that. There really is a sure foundation on which to stand, one who will support you today and tomorrow and into eternity. His name is Jesus Christ. Verse 16 says, Thus says the Lord, I am, I, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And that sure foundation that is laid in Zion is Jesus Christ. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, which says this. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole uh, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
The sure foundation in Isaiah is Jesus. And that's referenced a couple of times in the New Testament, not just in Ephesians. Christ is the only sure foundation for your life. He is the only sure foundation for eternal salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. Only Jesus can save you. And at the end of time, all people will be judged. And either hail will sweep away people who have taken refuge in lies. But whoever has been built upon Christ, whoever has trusted in Christ by believing in him will stand on the sure foundation and remain eternally. Christ is the sure foundation for knowledge of God. No one has ever seen God the Father. So how do we know what God is like? No one's ever seen God the Father. So how do we know what God is like? By the revelation of God the Son, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, Christ. And so we build everything we know about God the Father upon what we have seen in Christ, God the Son in human flesh upon the earth. You cannot know God the Father apart from God the Son, Jesus Christ. So Christ is the sure foundation for our knowledge of what God is like. Christ is the sure foundation for our knowledge of what the Christian life ought to look like. God in human flesh showed us perfect humanity. So we read about and follow his example. No other foundation will be a reliable guide for human existence. If you go and buy out all the self-help books that exist in the world and read them all, you still won't have a sure foundation for what humanity ought to look like. But in Christ you do. He is the sure foundation. He is the perfect example. Christ is the sure foundation through the trials of life. People and wealth and possessions and intelligence and your own emotional strength will one day all let you down. But on Christ, the solid rock, we can stand and endure through all things. Moral failing will not bring me down because Christ is my righteousness and I'm stood on the foundation of his righteousness. Slander, criticism, hate will not topple me as a Christian because Christ's love is pure and eternal. Loneliness cannot break me because Christ is my friend and my brother and he's always with me even to the end of the age. Illness cannot rip me apart because Christ has won my healing either now or in the new heavens and the new earth where disease will be no more. Even death itself cannot strike and bring me down because I will still stand on the sure foundation which is Christ. Christ is the resurrection king and I will live forever with him. So through any of life's circumstances there is one sure foundation who will never let you down. He is the stone, the tested stone on which you can always stand and his name is Jesus. All other foundations will fail you. Do not rely on anything else other than Christ. But Christ is sure. He's precious. He's solid. Therefore, you cannot be too hasty to believe in Jesus. That's a funny phrase, isn't it, at the end of that verse. You cannot be too hasty to believe in Christ, the sure foundation. That was Gemma's word, wasn't it? Believe in God. Believe in Christ. And so if you're an unbeliever, you cannot be too hasty today to run forward. Uh, You can do it now if you really want to, but run forward and say, I want to believe in Christ. You cannot be too hasty. Don't even wait until the end of the sermon. Do it right now. Believe in Christ. Believe in him and you will find him to be a solid, tested stone, precious as a foundation for your life. Now, tomorrow and forever and ever. Verse 22 
says, do not scoff. You've got two options, really. Scoff at Christ, God's word, blah, blah, blah. Or believe on Christ. And stand firm forever on the rock that is Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Believe in his death on your behalf. Believe in his resurrection from the dead. Believe that he has ascended into heaven. Believe that he is the Lord of hosts to whom all power belongs. Believe today and receive these glorious things. Receive a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty. God himself will be your glory and your beauty and the only thing you'll ever want to show off about. You will receive a teacher in God who offers rest. Learn from him. And if you're a Christian, start resting in learning about Christ. And you will receive a sure and precious foundation in the cornerstone of Christ. Be built upon him in every area of your life. He will never, ever let you down.